Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com spoken today. Hey, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Tennis and Bagels podcast. This is Vanch and... Um, as you all, all of you listeners know, we have this tradition uh, here at the Tennis and Bagels podcast, and uh, it's been it's been a great tradition, especially the last, uh, especially after the last five editions of majors, we've always had on the wonderful Steve Flink. He's a renowned uh, tennis writer, and he was inducted into the International Tennis Hall of Fame, and he joins us once again as we recap Roland Garros. So here's our conversation with Steve. Hello, Steve. Uh, pleasure as always. Our listeners enjoy this a lot, and uh, I enjoy it immensely. It's a pleasure, uh, you know, bouncing off different takes and uh, doing a recap of of each major. So, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, Vanch. It's nice to be back with you. Uh, it was quite an interesting fortnight at uh, at Roland Garros this time. So, I think we've got a lot to talk about. Sweet. Let's get right into it. So, um, you know, obviously, you know, generally, I like to start off with the final, uh, the men's final, and obviously, you know, it was a it was a bit of an anticlimactic match, so I think I'd rather start so, sort of midway to the through the tournament because obviously um, Rafael Nadal won his twenty second major and fourteenth at Roland Garros, which is just astounding that he has the same number of uh, Roland Garros titles as Pete Sampras does, uh, you know, total majors. But um, looking at his run, obviously, you know, this was a re- remarkable run. He beat four top ten players en route to the title. That's only ever happened three times in the Open era. You know, the previous two being. Uh, Roger Federer at the 2017 Australian Open, and then you have to go all the way back to Mats Wielander, who did it as a 17-year-old in 1982 at Roland Garros, where he beat Vilas in the final. But yeah, um, that, I guess yeah. that that one. Just to interrupt briefly, that was the most spectacular because uh, you know Mats knocking off Lendl and Clerk and Gary Elitis and finally Vilas. I mean that that string of wins. When retrospectively, I look back on that and was was with was the best achievement of of all uh because those were all really tough players for him to beat particularly at that stage of his career and uh so that to me was the foremost achievement among the examples that you're citing terrific uh yeah yeah that's um that seems really impressive especially to do that at 17 you know with the with the minimal experience he had at that point but um i guess should we start with the with the Felix match because obviously that was the third time uh, that he was pushed to a fifth set ever at, at Roland Garros and you know uh, Ali Asim really pushed him and Nadal had to come up with some spectacular points particularly in the last two games of the fifth set where we really saw I guess vintage Nadal so yeah I would say you're so right and I think he played the last three games well I I thought that Felix probably lamented a bit the break point that cost him the break that put him down 5-3 because he had a, you know, a, a Rafa beautifully anticipated Felix's uh, forehand angle drop volley, but I think he didn't get enough angle on it. And if you look at the replay, you see that Rafa is not stretched that much. He has to get forward, but he doesn't have to get that wide. And 
that's one I think that Felix would have liked to have had over, as they say. But really, that's so little that you can fault him on. I'm nitpicking when I say that because he played a terrific match. And uh, Felix, when he won, he got up that 5-1 lead in the first set and Rafa managed to get the next couple of games of Felix closes that out. And then it looked to me, Bonch, like, like uh, <clears throat> Rafa had taken real control of the match in the second and third sets. And I, w- I was figuring, oh, well, this is going to be 6-3 in the fourth, pretty comfortable. And then he loses his serve from 40 love in the second game of the fourth. That was uh, very costly. And even though he broke back, he lost his serve again. The set got away. It was really hanging in the balance. And Felix would, played a terrific match. And makes me wonder, Bonch, not that Felix isn't a very good clay court player, but it makes me wonder about just how dangerous he's going to be for Rafa, Novak, and the others when, when he gets on the quicker courts. I mean, even at Wimbledon, for instance, where he beat Zarev last year, he's he and the had that great open before losing to Medvedev. So I still think he's actually a little better on hard and grass. And so it was a great effort to push Rafa to his limits on on the clay at Roland Garros. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Especially if you look at the last four majors. I mean, he's made he's made a quarters, a semis, and had match yeah. points against Medvedev. And then you know comes comes really close here. What did you make of the sort of coaching dynamics that were at play with uh, with Uncle Tony um, uh, being in his in his box? Or Here's what. I- I'm glad you brought that up. It makes me think of when it was first announced that Uncle Tony was going to work with Felix. And I thought to myself, how is he going to do that? There are going to be times when these two are going to meet. How is he going to be able to handle that, the dynamics of that, the the complexities of it, the, the conflicted loyalties? And I think it really showed. He had to find a neutral place to watch the match, found a great seat behind the court, I guess, in the president's box or whatever they call it, dignitaries area. That was smart. But he said a few things that perplexed me. I mean, he's, you know, he basically said he was rooting for Rafa. I don't see how you can do that when you're coaching Felix. Felix publicly didn't seem annoyed. But I think that's something that Tony's got to sort out in his mind, at least for the short term, while uh, Rafa is still in the game. Because I always, I guess what I'm saying is I always thought Uncle Tony would wait until Rafa was done. And then pick whatever player you wanted or work with some young player that wasn't where it wasn't. But Felix, obviously, we knew how great he was going to be. And I, I feel like Uncle Tony's in a tough spot and, and Rafa's very understanding of the whole thing. But I think a coach's first loyalty must be to his player. And the problem is when it, when it, when his player is, is colliding against his nephew, his his real loyalties were with his nephew. Yeah, I was quite surprised that he gave those interviews, especially, you know, knowing all of these facts that he put himself out there like so publicly and, you know, uh, must be a really awkward position for Felix. But I guess Felix agreed to those. Uh, yeah. Uh, to those and Felix, yeah, you're right. And Felix was very gracious about the whole thing. And you didn't send any kind of a, uh, a problem from his end or or, you know, uneasiness or. But who's to know what's going on behind the scenes? Who's to know how he felt? You can't feel good as the player, though, to hear your coach say that. He understands that that Uncle Tony's going to have, uh, always have affection for Rafa and great sympathy and love as a family member. But this was about a big tennis match being played where one player is going to move on to the quarterfinals of the French Open and the other one is not. And so to me, it, it's it's as simple as that. And you have to be able to, and the other thing is, I guess, I don't know what your read on it was, Vonch, but I'm assuming he really didn't say much to Felix before the match either. That's also part of the deal. 
is that you have to help Felix figure out how to beat Rafa. You, you've got to come up with the right game plan. And I don't think Tony wanted to do that. That's my, was that your read? That was my read as well um, on the, on the, on, on that situation that uh, I don't, I don't, I don't think he really got that much tactical advice or, or guidance before going into the match, but I was impressed by Felix's problem solving that match. I thought he went to the drop shot quite a bit. I thought he really oh, yeah. mixed things up and he didn't play sort of his usual, you know, bang, bang, first strike tennis that, that seemed to work so well. And that, that got him two sets as well, because I thought every time, you know, they went into a long baseline rallies, it was still Nadal who had the edge, but um, I, was, yes. I, I was impressed with uh, Felix's all court sense in that match. And he, he really seemed like he, he approached that match uh, with, with confidence and belief uh, as he should have. And as, as, as you're saying, with a lot of thoughtfulness, probing and, and a lot of variety, and that was impressive. And uh, he certainly didn't play a bad fifth. It came down to that one break. So yeah. he really played, I thought he really played, you know, I, I don't think he played great in the third set. I thought he played really well in the first, pretty well in the second, not a good third, a fine fourth and, a, and an impressive fifth. So he's got nothing to be ashamed of. And it certainly would give him confidence if for, if for some reason, if Rafa's able to recover physically and this procedure works and he does play Wimbledon and they happen to meet again. The, I think that matches will have helped uh, Felix a lot to go out there believing and, and feeling like, okay, if I really serve my best on the grass and I'm disciplined, I can, I can be in this match again. I've got another shot. Absolutely. Yep. So let's talk about the Djokovic match now. Of course, Djokovic, you know, his clay court season didn't start off in a great way. He lost to Davidovich Fokina and kind of wilted a bit in the third set there. You know, hadn't played in a long time. Of course, we know all the events that happened in Australia. He started building, sort of getting better week after week. You know, got to the finals in Belgrade, but again, ran out of gas four straight three set matches. And then he really hit his stride, I thought, in Rome. And he played a fantastic match against Felix, knocks off Rude, you know, wins the title there in the final. No, over also, just let me add to that. He also played well in Madrid. He, he got a default oh, yes, there. Yes. yes. Had a, um, he only had a couple of matches before playing Alcaraz, but it was a really. Of his losses, of his many losses in the last, uh, of his losses in the last couple of years, it was probably the best performance he's given in defeat. So that wasn't really discouraging either. And then, as you point out, he goes to Rome, doesn't lose his set, and he also didn't lose his set all the way up to Rafa. He was looking very, and I thought he looked particularly impressive in the round of sixteen against Diego Schwartzman, who's a first-rate clay court player, as we know. Yeah. Uh, what, going through the years and beating Rafa a couple of years ago in Rome and losing to Rafa the last couple of years at Roland Garros, terrific clay court player. And, and uh, Novak made him look pedestrian that day. So I really thought he was peaking coming into this match with Rafa. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I thought the same. And then I thought, you know, uh, I, I thought obviously it was a, it was a great start by Nadal, but I was a bit perplexed why Djokovic wasn't the one who came out, you know, sort of guns blazing and sort of matched him, you know, okay. The last, three times that they've played at, at Roland Garros, I've always felt like, uh, you know, obviously we had, we had the bagel in 2020 and then he was down five love, but he quickly, oh. he quickly started getting things together. The first couple of games were close last year. And then, you know, he, it was a six, three, first set, but here, oh. you know, he oh. let, he let Rafa off to a really, really fast start. And, you know, Rafa took full advantage and he went up three love in the second. And then we sort of had, we sort of had, you know, Novak having to play like one of the most, he had to really redline for to get back get himself back in that set and win six of the next seven games. And I felt like that second set uh, was was the only time in the match where I felt like both players were playing really well at the same time. And, we, and as a result, we had two really lengthy games. You know, almost thirty minutes. And yeah, you know, right. that set was that that set. Although it was nothing like their third set last year, uh, it was it was still about an hour and a half. And I felt like it took so much out of Djokovic physically. But I was surprised at the 
uh, at the level dip in the third and you know yeah, it was just kind of a strange match with a lot of ebbs and flows so yeah you described it well you described it well and i think you share my i would use the word perplexed as well to describe at least in part to describe novak's performance let me just get to a couple of things uh, backing up what you said even Isovich made some comments. You probably might have read some of this interview that he did that was widely circulated. And he said that he had warned Djokovic that he had to start better this year. You would think after the last two years and the, the, the cases that you mentioned where he gets obliterated in the 2020 final and then could have lost the set six love again, first set last year and got it back to five, three, that he would have been really, uh, completely concentrated early on saying, I'm, I'm going to stay with him early on. I'm not letting him have any early leads this time. The first set is far too important. He managed to come back a year ago, but that's a very hard way to do it against Rafa. I mean, if you look at it, I mean, uh, it's almost impossible to do. And he's the only guy to have done that, to have come from a set down at Roland Garros to beat Rafa. Mm-hmm. And I feel like he, you said he didn't have guns blazing. That's a good way to describe it. He didn't. The very first game of the match, if you looked at the points, he was playing a lot of defense on his own serve. Now, partly is your missing missing first serves doesn't help, but he seemed almost content to play the defense as opposed to get on the ascendancy and get on top of the rally and be the aggressor. I was I, that perplexed me, and then he ends up losing a tough game. Could have held. I think he had at least one game point, but he just that was important, and he got behind, and then he had a chance to break back. He couldn't get it. The first and third sets, Vanch, were very similar to me. He gets down the immediate break. The difference in the second set is he managed a spectacular comeback from two breaks down. But in the first and third, he got down the early break, had a chance to get back on serve, couldn't take it, and then things unraveled. Because yeah. there, I don't think there should be two, two, two – as well as Rappa was playing, Novak shouldn't be losing two sets 6-2 that way, mm-hmm. particularly the third. And and I, my question for you is, do you think he was really that physically tired at the start of the third? I don't think so. I think it was partially a mental lapse. Yeah. Uh, you would think a set like that would give him a, you know, a psychological boost and he'd, he'd go yeah. into the third, you know, with, with, a, with a lot more confidence, but he seemed to just get a little bit passive to me and just, oh, he, got, he did. Uh, he got, he got and, and I also felt like his return of serve, um, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't doing well on the second serve returns. He was like a little too oh. far back and he wasn't attacking and that, you know, uh, you know, and taking them on like on the rise and, uh, and, and that way starting to get the points more in his favor and make Nadal hit more backhands. And I, I thought he did a really good job of that in the second set, but he sort of went away from that in the third. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Great job in the second. So look at the, here, here are the facts. He, he's down two breaks in the second set. He breaks Rafa three times. He broke him one more time in the fourth. Didn't yep. break the first or the third. That's very telling. That should not happen uh, when he being the great returner that he is. And I think partially it's for the reasons you described, a little too far back, a little too passive in it. He should have. And the second set, his, his attitude was to get to make really deep aggressive returns and on the second or third shot create an opening for a winner and 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 hit it blast mm-hmm. him off the court which is what he did and mm-hmm. yeah i was very surprised that he didn't start the third better and then rafa was was really reassured by that because he had quickly was he quickly was back on top of things back in control in a hurry but then we should talk about the fourth because Djokovic didn't lose. He got that early break. Rafa disputed that one call on the sideline and proved the TV replay 
was pretty conclusive that the ball was wide. You're talking about the backhand drop shot cross court. Yeah, the backhand angle drop that went just wide. And so that gives Novak the quick early break finally for him. He's got it. He That really seemed to fuel him. And I thought he was playing one good service game after another right up until he served for the set. And then that was another one of those moments that was a bit confounding because he served really well in that game. He had a couple of really good first serves into the corners that helped him get to two set points. Mm-hmm. Served well up to that point. Then on the first set point, all he's trying to do is angle a backhand cross court. He's not trying to hit it hard. He's just looking to open the court. I don't ever see him miss that shot in the net. I can't remember the last time I saw him, but he did there. And then he gets the second set point. Rafa's return was inside the service line. Novak made an aggressive play, and then Rafa hits another short ball. And Novak really should have nailed the approach deep and closer to the sideline. Instead, way too he, central, way too central, not and deep not, enough. not deep or, and, and not close enough to the silent. It was a really easy pass down the line for Rafa. Mm. And th- that was really costly to have those two openings because we'll never know what the how the fifth set would have played out. But Novak had played well enough to win the fourth. Then the the uh, the in addition to that, he played, I thought, for him, a poor tiebreak until he was 6-1 down. And then he kind of loosened up and won a couple of points on his serve, won one on Rafa's before Rafa closed it out. But that was too big a deficit. Yeah. And it wasn't a classic Djokovic. In other words, he didn't have that deep intensity we saw in the third set tiebreak a year ago, the, the one that swung the whole match, mm-hmm. that gave him the two sets to one lead in the four set tiebreak this time, because that was a second chance. It was a chance for him to make amends for not serving the set out. And I, I, I thought Rafa was much better prepared for that tiebreak and much more confident. So was it, 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 was, it was surprising given the circumstances. And Rafa's come off a four-hour and 21-minute match against Felix. He's got all these issues with his foot, which granted he took care of with the, with the injections. But I just thought we would have seen a, a, a Djokovic much more self-assured and confident. A Djokovic more like the one we saw last year, that once he got his teeth into the match, he enjoyed it. He he uh, he exuded a, a nice confidence and, and a sense of the spirit that you like to see in him. And this time it was only Ra- Rafa was the one. And again, even Isvich alluded to that. He talked about the body language of both players. And there's no doubt that Rafa carried himself like someone who believed he was going to win and Novak carried himself like someone who had some nagging doubts. And even Isovich commented on that too. So he, he hadn't had a chance to talk to Novak when he did this interview, but that he was, I, I, don't, I don't think he understood it. I think he felt going in, Novak was ready. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I, that's, that's a lot of good analysis and lots to unpack there. I think also the other thing that was telling, sorry. I saw- Quick thing, the, the, think about the implications of this match. That's why it's surprising that Rafa had it, you know, for all he talks about not wanting to worry about these things, and it'll, it, he, he acts as if he doesn't really care that much about how they end up in the Grand Slam title race, which I don't believe, yeah. by the way. But that's his way of taking pressure off himself. But Novak, he knew the implications. And here's the other thing, Vanch. They both knew that the kid had lost. They both knew Alcaraz had lost to Zarek which was a big deal because I think either one of them, neither one really necessarily wanted to play Carlos. They weren't afraid of him, but they knew how dangerous Carlos was. And they weren't, they weren't underestimating Sasha. But I think in their minds, I really believe in the minds of both players, 
that they thought in this, in essence, they were playing a final, that this, that this title was going to be in their hands. If they could get through this match, be in the semis, play Zara, because there wasn't anybody on the other half that was going to beat them. That's how I looked at it. And I, and I would have thought Novak who's so conscious of the history and who has been so open about his desire to win this race for the most majors ever that he went out there and, and, and he didn't have that say that sense of urgency that you expected from him while Rafa was just quiet and contained and, and emoting at all the right times, but, but completely different attitude. One, you know, like he, he was definitely more mentally prepared than Novak. Yeah. I thought he was more mentally prepared and I thought his tactics uh, were, were spot on. I mean, going to the down the line forehand as early as he oh, possibly yeah. could in rallies and then, you know, using, I thought he was hitting his cross court backhand really well. I thought he was protecting his serve. Well, I mean, he was just on his game. Whereas I felt like, uh, whereas I felt like Novak was having to, was, was having a much harder time hitting through the court. Now I want to talk a little bit about the conditions because obviously, you know, in 2020 they had, you know, it was an indoor final and, you know, there was, it was, uh, in, you know, it was a bit different balls and all of that. And for all that Rafa talks about, you know, with the, with the heat, you know, he wants to, he like he prefers he knows doesn't know Roland Garros you know without the blazing hot conditions and then you know the ball helps his top spin and he can he can use his patterns a lot uh, a lot better during the day but I actually think you know there's still a power deficit between the two on clay and Djokovic uh, finds it a lot harder to hit through Rafa um, in these in these slower nighttime conditions so I'm kind of you know I I, yeah. I don't think this is a good, great matchup for for Djokovic at night like I actually I actually think it helps Nadal it gives him more time and. Uh, he can, he, he, his forehand is the biggest shot on the court. So no doubt about that. And there's no doubt that he was as committed to hitting the forehand down the line as I've ever seen him that he's been doing that more and more in the latter stages of his career, but he realized he had to have that shot working at full force against Novak. And you could see there were balls that were seen to be getting behind him and he was still able to muscle them down the line for winners. Very impressive. The racket had control to do that. And uh, so I agree with you about all that, but I do think that Djokovic in the second set and to some extent in the fourth, but especially when he came back in the second, he, that was the one time I thought he really, he had Rafa full of consternation, you know, it'd be with these two shot combinations with the deep returns, hitting outright winners and sort of making Rafa believe that he didn't have much to say about the outcome of some of those points that if Novak played that well, he couldn't stop it. And I thought he played I, the fourth no, set like, back, so my, impressively in terms of the zero to four shots. He kept it, it yeah. was a serve and serve plus one. But I felt like every time they went into a neutral rally and they went, uh, you know, they went into those lengthy baseline exchanges. I felt like Nadal was still the one with with greater inner belief. Yes, he was, and and I understandably because they favored him. But I'm saying I thought Djokovic would have tried to keep employing some of the second set tactics right into the third, which he didn't do. He got back to it to an extent in the fourth because he played a really good fourth up until the time he didn't close it out at, at 5-3, and he had the 5-2 lead, of course. So, yeah, I, I, Rafa played the match. I guess what it comes down to, Vanch, I don't think we're really disagreeing on. He played it more on his terms. I also agree with you that in the end, it was definitely not an advantage for Djokovic to play him at night. The other point that Ivanisovic made was it doesn't help Novak serve to play him at night. And he didn't have a, he shouldn't be losing his serve so many times, a couple of times in the, in the, in the first set, two more to go down two breaks in the second, you know, two more in the third and another in the, I mean, the seven times, I guess, altogether, that's too many. That shouldn't help. 
but I don't think that would have happened in, in daytime conditions. I think he would have gotten a little more help from the, the, the speed of the court and the balls going, traveling through the air faster. There would have been certain advantages for Novak in the day. And Rafa couldn't, have, I don't think he could have played too much better than he, than he ended up playing at night. We'll never know. Mm-hmm. But, but Rafa is, Rafa has this in his head and you alluded to it earlier. No, traditionally Roland Garros, we play in the day. I don't want to be playing at night, but, but, you know, 2020 dispelled the notion that he cannot handle these conditions, because as you said, it was an indoor final that year. And also the other times he was playing outdoors prior to the final, it was, it was in October. I mean, these are cool conditions in the autumn post us open. And he had, he had one of his most convincing French opens ever. So it's kind of, Silly thing. And as you know, everybody made such a big deal about it in advance and the raffle was going to be pushing to play it in the day. But in the end, he was very comfortable at night. No doubt about it. what we what was your take on what might have happened in the fifth set? I think that's a that's a good question. I'm actually not that sure Djokovic would have won because I feel like, you know, there was because of the because of the way the match was going and because he had that dip after he won the second set, I wasn't sure if he was going to come out with the same conviction at the start of the fifth, then he, he might just play a poor service game like he did in the third. So, I felt, but, I, but I felt I like, felt, it I felt like, you know, maybe, you know, both would have, we would have had a chance to see them both play well at the same time. And it could have been a classic. That's also my interpretation. Well, that that's the latter is what I would have been hoping for. I, I had, I would have had the same concerns from his end about maybe starting off in a less than confident fashion and spotting Rafa a break as a result and getting in trouble. But I also feeling they both would have been uh, deeply inspired in a fifth that that it would have actually brought out the best in both. And we might've seen something that went right down to the wire. Maybe, maybe maybe a fifth set tie break. It would have been fantastic to see that. Yeah. I think it would have, it would have inspired both of them and not, but I, you echo my, what I wrote in one of my articles and what I felt, which is that, I wouldn't have been too sure. I just would have liked to have seen it. But from Djokovic's end, I wouldn't have been that sure that he was going to produce it in the fifth and and use the momentum of the fourth to carry him through the fifth. And then Rafa being as stubborn as he is and the competitor that he is, you know, he's going to keep making you beat him. So just too bad. But from the standpoint of the fans, obviously the fifth set would have been electrifying and you know, we've seen it with them before at Roland Garros, that great 2013 semifinal that Rafa finally won. I mean, it, it would have been nice to see it on this occasion, especially since they played far too soon. Where they, they shouldn't be meeting in the quarterfinals, and it just would have given the occasion of that little extra luster. For sure, yeah. By the way, I did also just have one one other point I wanted to make. In the 5-3 game where Djokovic was serving in the fourth set, the first point of the game, you know, he gets burned by a Nadal drop shot. Yeah, uh, and it's like a it's, it was a good disguise by by Nadal, but I was a bit surprised Djokovic didn't chase that down until I noticed he almost you know he just lost balance. He was a bit too far behind the baseline, and you know usually when Nadal wins the first point on the other guy's serve at Roland Garros, he breaks seventy percent of the time. So for That's me, that was a, oh, that was a oh, sign. Oh, like, you're yeah. right. In this case, Novak still went on to have the two set points and should have held. Yeah, but yes, that point. It was not a good drop shot. I remember Jim Courier saying on television, that was not a good drop shot. Yes. Novak, he said Novak could have could have gotten it. I think even with him being off balance, he, yes, he could have. And mm-hmm. I think given the importance of the point, and 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 he knows that Rafa has that tendency to, you know, if he gets you down even love 15, you yeah. he, he Nova, Novak's aware of those things. Uh-huh. So it was 
surprising that he conceded the point. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but but now we move ahead. We go to the semis, and you know, I, I guess uh, you know, first I can get your take on the on the Alcaraz Zverev match as well, because um, finally it kind of showed me, you know, that Alcaraz is a little human after all, and he didn't play a great first two sets. I thought Zverev, you know, played played one of the better matches I've ever seen him play against. You know, he hadn't beaten a top ten player before coming in. Um, very solid first two sets from him. Um, you know, uh, Alcaraz just not really able to hit through him. Too many unforced errors. Where, you know, he played, he played, it was a brilliant fight back for him to get back in the third. And obviously he had that set point in the fourth set tie break uh, where he just missed sort of a routine backhand. And I, I just kind of, I had the feeling, I don't know about you, but I just had the feeling that had it gone to a fifth, I think with the mental baggage that Zverev has combined with this, uh, with this uh, inner self-belief and conviction that Alcaraz has, along with his winning streak um, as of late, I felt like he would have won that fifth set. Totally, then, totally agree. I will add this to what you said about Sasha in the first two sets. Yeah, you described it well. He also served exceedingly well. And, and mm-hmm. what, yeah. so impressive when he's having a great serving day to see him able to hold so easily on clay. And, mm-hmm. and, and Carlos was really just at a complete loss to do anything about it. Then, then the other thing that I wanted to add is that, okay, so, so at the end of the third set, Sasha got a little tight and Carlos mm-hmm. pounded wins the set but then in the fourth Sasha Sir for the match yep and and he that was another nervous game from him that's what made it impressive to me that he somehow found a way out of that tie break and you're right kind of a it was not a great point Uh, Carlos it was a it was a miss that he could have been avoided Carlos didn't he shouldn't have missed that backhand but great uh match point from Sasha with the blistering that blazing backhand return winner down the line yeah, I thought it was an impressive performance that he held on. And I also completely agree that had Alcaraz won the fourth, I would have I would have heavily favored him in the fifth set. Not to say that Sasha would collapse, but I think Carlos would have been unstoppable at that point. And then that would have been fascinating if we'd had a an all-Spanish semi. Really would have been fascinating to see Rafa have to play him rather than Zer, particularly since the roof was up since they were playing under the roof uh, and, and he was struggling so much with the perspiration against Zarev, just would have been really compelling to see him have to get by Alcaraz, who I think psychologically would have worried him even more. And that's not yeah. to minimize what Sasha did, because Sasha played some great tennis against Rafa. Yeah, uh, I, I, I totally agree. Um, you know, you just trust Carlos more in the big moments, which is crazy because he, he has, this was only a sixth major and Zarev has been in 27 of them. But... Um, you know, now we get to this to, to the semis. This really grueling physical, uh, you know, these sauna-like conditions with the you know the damp clay, and obviously it ended really unfortunately for for Zverev with the fall at the end. And you know, you hope he he, he recovers, and that's not that's not a way anybody wanted to see that match, you know, end. And um, but the the fact that it went on three three and a half hours in those in those conditions just took so much out of Nadal. So I feel like he he caught a little bit of a break with that. Uh, you know, not going on longer uh, because oh, we're big. usually on track for it to go on to five plus hours. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yeah, I, I think it was more than a little break because... I only say that because, okay, if Sasha wins the tiebreak in the second set, we'll never know. Mm-hmm. That that be out there at least probably a couple more hours at least for two more sets. If mm-hmm. Sasha doesn't win the tiebreak, still could have been a long third, and Sasha might even still win the third. Who knows? Because Rafa was having – it was such an ordeal for him with the perspiring uh, under the roof. So, yeah, I mean, he saved himself a lot of time on court and ends up being just a little over three hours, you know, by the – when they left the court, then there was that time of back to the locker room before Sasha came back and conceded defeat. So, yeah, I, but I I also think that Sasha, you know, you you pointed out his experience versus Carlos inexperience, but Sasha, there's something about him in, on these big points and these big matches. It's yeah. it's really concerning. But I mean, here's uh, right? uh, six two up in the tiebreak and. Two up in the tiebreak, and you'd think back to, say, the U.S. Open final of 2020, his big opportunity, two sets to love and a breakup, serves to the match in the fifth set. And it just seems when the chips are down that, you know, he he just has a way of uh, administering self-inflicted wounds. It's it's too bad because, uh, yeah, six, and Rafa played some spectacular points from 6-2 down in the tiebreak, but Sasha didn't, he didn't seem to have that, to know exactly what he wanted to do, and he had played kind of a half, a serve and volley that should have been successful, and he made the back hit the back end volley long. Rafa aced him on the first set point. Rafa hit a great forehand pass on the run, but Sasha did not come up with the goods. Is the bottom line, and then then I thought it was even worse to tell you the truth when they had that whole string of service breaks, eight breaks in nine games, and but there he there he was serving at five three. Oh yeah, yeah. That was- and, and that that was a that was a golden opportunity to say, okay, I know we've had a lot of breaks here, but I've got to buckle down. He serves three double faults, so of the four points he lost, three were double faults, yep. and that that was a critical game because there then he's back to one set all, and you know that's why I guess I would have favored Rafa in the tiebreak at that stage. Rafa having escaped that five three game, and then at love thirty on his own serve in the next game that I would have liked Rafa's chances in that breaker. Yep. Uh, We'll never know. But as you said, it was a terribly sad way for the match to end. And who who among us could ever forget the screech, the scream from Sasha when he went down on the trying to hit that running forehand and and also the class and uh, dignity he displayed and coming back out on court in the crutches and shaking the umpire's hand, hugging Rafa. I thought that was just terrific because he, he's he's dying inside. Yeah, for sure. Um... Yeah, and then for uh, for Nadal's end, uh, you know that the tiebreak that he played, uh, you know he gave himself a little, he gave his box a little bit of a stare after he won that. It wasn't his usual trademark celebration, and you would have thought, you know, you know after that that he'd sort of carry that momentum into the second set, which he did. He he went up an early break and he was up right. forty fifteen, and, right. and you thought, okay, this set is running from 
running away, but I thought Zverev did such a good job of, you know, he didn't, he, he got himself back in, back in pole position of winning that set, you know, yeah. he could have easily let that go. And that, that's why it was yeah, a shame. Right about, right about that. Look, it was not, it wasn't, you know, it was almost like rapper was saying to them, I got, I got away with something there. I'm a little lucky to get out of that, which is humble of him because it was also his own doing, but yeah. yeah, he. I just think he was not enjoying the. It, th- those conditions were really trying for him. And he was sweating a lot, like crazy, crazy. And then Sasha, I have to say, Zareb looked so good to me physically. I had the feeling he he could have played five sets if he had to. It's just that I wouldn't have trusted him mentally, right yeah. down to the fire. Even if it went to four all in the fifth, I'd still be saying Rafa's going to win this match. Yeah, yeah. Particularly with how many times he's failed to close out, you know, matches and. You know, especially all the baggage that he's he's built up over the over the course of these uh, events. But yeah. uh, but it was uh, definitely you know he was going into that final against Rude, you know, knowing fully well that he didn't really have to change his game a lot. Uh, in fact, not not at all really, because um, you know his pattern against this cross court forehand against Rude's uh, you know short spinny uh, two handed backhand that yeah. you know can yeah. be effective. But it just uh, you know it requires a lot more time, and Nadal's able to rush that wing, and yeah, and then I thought Nadal did such a good job in the final with his cross court backhand as well, opening up that side, and he know, did too. Yeah. He, he same way. I think that pleased him even more. He expected to have that success with that pattern on the, of his heavy topspin forehand up to the rude backhand, but he wasn't as as sure that his backhand was going to be that good. So once that came. When he was firing that well with the flatter cross-court backhands, then Rude really had no chance. I will only add this, though, Vanj, that pretty good first set. Rude broke back once and, and made a go of it, and then he goes up 3-1 in the second. You didn't feel like they're going to win the set, but I also didn't think he was going to lose 11 games in a row. Mm-hmm. And I that was unfortunate. You know, yes, it's his first major final, and it's intimidating to play Someone is, as you know, the all-time great on clay. There's a, un, a lot of understandable reasons, but you would have liked to have seen him stay in there a little bit better than he did and yeah. uh, play a, slight, a better third set. It just wasn't to be. And Rafa really did pounce when he saw the opportunity to close that match out in a hurry. And there was no stopping yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, you know, you have the dynamic of him uh, training at the Nadal Academy, being there for the last three or four years looking up to Nadal, idolizing him really, and, uh, you know, seeing him, you know, win all of his Roland Garros basically from 2005. And he was even in the crowd in 2013, you know, watching, watching Nadal do his thing. And so, you know, from one angle, you could have said, okay, so then maybe he has a good read on sort of, you know, tactically how he needs to approach this match. And like you said, did a very good job to go up 3-1, you know, hit a really nice down the line forehand, which gave him the break in the second set. And you thought, okay, he's going to keep this respectable, maybe a 3-3 and 2, 3-3 and 3, something like that. Right, but right. I really felt like, you know, you could even see it in the press conference afterwards that he, he was definitely resigned at the end uh, in, the, in that match. And even he was asked a question by one of the reporters, like, you know, what is there, what is the one moment in this match that you take away? And he mentioned the Nadal backhand winner on championship point as the moment. So I think to me, that was, uh, that was quite revealing. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, you hope that he'll, he'll learn from that and the people around him will remind him that Rafa is very fond of of Casper too, except that when the bell rings to go out there and play the match, he answers it. Uh-huh. And, and his, his attitude is, okay, I'm not going to, I'm going to win this match cleanly and I'm not, there's going to be no gamesmanship, but this for the next two hours, this is my enemy. 
I really think that's how he looks at things. Not not personally, but just like I'm here to do a job. I'm here to win. And Rude Rude has come a long ways, and he's become a very good competitor. I I love the way that he battled through that match against Holger Rune, which was a contentious clash. Absolutely, and, yeah. And I thought I loved the way he had it. Sort of, he, he had a certain attitude there. Then he didn't like Rune's behavior, and I didn't blame him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I I, th- I saw some real mental toughness there. Yeah. And I saw I saw a little more mental toughness out of him in the semifinals of Rome against Novak. He battled hard. He lost in straight, but he stayed in there better. So I think he, he the people around him have to say, listen, you know, you and Rafa can enjoy each other off the court and train at the academy some more and, and be friends. But when you're out there, you've got to be above all a competitor. So he could have gotten a bit more out of the final than he did, but not to be too harsh on him because he had a he had a phenomenal tournament to reach his first major final. And I think that in the end is going to matter a lot as the rest of the season unfolds, he's going to feel like he does belong and that he he won't feel it was freakish that he got to the final. Yes. He was on the weaker half of the draw clearly, but I think it'll, it'll fuel him with some self-belief going forward. Yeah. I'm also impressed, um, you know, by his, by, uh, by him physically to get through a lot of these matches because a lot of these weren't easy in the bottom half of the draw. And he played the week before in Geneva. Could have easily I, lost the final I, against Zhao Souza, but he comes back and he wins. And, you know, could yeah. have won five sets against Songa, you know, was down two I, sets to one against Sonigo, which I felt like was a big thing for him, especially since he, he had lost his, you know, last few French Open campaigns in the third round, especially yeah. last against Fokina. But what really, yeah. what really impressed me was also the game that he played in the second set against Chilich. Uh, when um, you know, yeah, he had lost yeah. the first set six three, and he, you know, Chilich has these yeah. three break points to break him back, and all of a sudden it's five all in the second. But he comes up with a forehand winner, an unreturned serve, another forehand winner, an ace, and a backhand winner. And from there, he never really looked back. And no, no, one of those things that was impressive. You're right; that could have gotten very da- dangerous. I did like his chances going going into the match to win in four. But you're right; if that if he uh-huh. had not pulled things out in the clutch in that game uh it, it could have been different because Chilich was on a really nice roll himself yeah and be in, in the semis and pushing hard to get to the final you're right then the way he played from that point forward though was just very impressive stuff completely took control of the rest of the match yeah couldn't agree and I also feel like he has a lot more grown confidence on hard court he made the year-end championship semi-final yeah. last year he's Prior to this, his best result was an Australian Open fourth round. And he, you know, the Miami yeah. final this year, which yeah. was a decently close match against Alcaraz. So I really feel like he's he's come a long way. It'll be interesting to see how he does on the grass. It will. It will. I think he can do okay on the grass. I don't think it's going to be his best surface. And I think he'll do better on the hard over the summer. But he'll he'll do all right. And he obviously, this does give him a lift. I, you know, it, I think he's uh, he, he'll feel as if, he might be ready to demand a little bit more out of himself now that he wants to make a habit out of this kind of uh, showing at a major. So he'll go, he'll go hard after Wimbledon. Yeah, for sure. And then for Nadal, obviously to get to, you know, get to number 22 and obviously we'll see how the, uh, what, what, what happens with his decision at Wimbledon, because obviously he's just undergone a radio frequency ablation in which, you know, there's basically, you know, through radio waves, he'll, They'll ins- they inserted a needle into his into the nerves, and it's some kind of a nerve burning procedure. You know, I'm not really yeah. a medical expert, but it seems like either you know that's the option that's going to work, or he'll have to undergo a major surgery, and then that could take him out of the game for many many months. So it'll be interesting because he's in a it's in an interesting situation. Obviously, just like Djokovic last year, he's won the first two majors, and he's going for the Grand Slam. So you know, yeah, absolutely. He, he, he and, and 
obviously why he wants to just give himself a chance to play there and, and hopefully be healthy. Uh, I don't know what to expect. As you know, his recent history at Wimbledon has not been what he would have wanted. You know, he last won the title in 2010, then lost to Djokovic in the 11 final, had a string of tough defeats, but then did manage to have a couple of decent Wimbledons after that. It lost to Roger in the semis in 19, lost to Novak in a classic five setter the year before, and he would have won that tournament because the, the winner of Novak Rafa was going to play Kevin Anderson, who was exhausted from the Isner semi. So yep. it, it, uh, that, that was another opportunity, but he's had some hard luck on these lawns uh, and it's not his best surface, but I do think the way he plays these days, if he's healthy, he'll, he'll contend, he'll contend strong. And you, you hope that we can be able to see that, see that, that this procedure will work. We can only just cross our fingers on that. Yeah, absolutely. And what do you think this means overall, I guess, you know, for the whole, I mean, obviously there's, there's a lot more that goes into, you know, who is the most accomplished player of all time. I don't really like to use the word greatest because obviously that's, you know, that involves some more subjectivity. Uh, but, but I guess, you know, with 22 and, you know, given all the other records that Djokovic has with the weeks at number one and, you know, having, they've both won every major twice. Um, do you think because of the overall, you know, more accomplished player that Djokovic is on all the surfaces that Nadal needs to distance himself a bit more in the Grand Slam race. And of, and of course, I mean, he's, he's two away, which is already, I mean, he's two ahead, which is already pretty big, but if he goes up three, it's going to be pretty hard to argue against him. Um, Even and, if and he, that's why I feel like this Wimbledon is really critical for Djokovic because he hasn't won one since last year. Oh no, definitely critical. No, I would say Vance that it's the, the debate will linger for a long time. I don't think yeah. he necessarily has to make it three, but if he's able to maintain, if it just, and even if somehow Novak wins Wimbledon, Rafa got another French next year, if it ends up with a two tournament edge, that's still significant. Yeah. On the other, it, it, you know, people, people are going to, are, are going to focus too on Novak's seven years at number one, ending seven years at number one, the record number of weeks, They'll look at all those things and the surface diversity, as you said. His yeah. record is a more balanced record than Rafa's. On the other hand, I don't. I think that Rafa, the fact that he got that Australian, I think was a big deal yeah. because to, to for him to match Djokovic in the career set of at least two majors at all four is is it, it proves that, and he even has one more U.S. Open than Novak at this point, four to three. Yeah. And, Novak with the big edge at Wimbledon, with the big edge in Australia, with his nine titles, but it's it's it still becomes uh, it, it's it, it still becomes a very fierce debate on both sides of the aisle, don't you yeah, think? I mean, it does. Very I back think and if forth. Novak had kept going, if Novak had won the Grand Slam, that might that would that again that would have been something that would have probably pushed him over the top because that nobody else would have done that since Labor and 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 if he would have maintained his lead, but a lot has changed. It was so improbable that we'd be sitting here now talking about Rafa winning the first two majors of 2022, given the physical condition he was in the second half of last year. And the only match he played, but one match after Roland Garros and comes in and makes that spectacular recovery against Medvedev in the finals of the Australian from two sets down and two, three love 40 in the third. I mean, this is this this has been a sea change in a lot of ways. Uh, we, we could we 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 would have thought maybe Djokovic would have the two tournament edge by now at, at the end of last year. It's not the case. Mm -hmm. So uh, I but I do think 
Djokovic will have the urgency. You know, you talked about how important, critical, you said critical. It will be a critical tournament, but I think he'll respond well to that because he's so comfortable uh, at Wimbledon and he's won there the last three times he's played in 18, 19 and 21. There, there was no tournament in 20. So I believe that, and, and, I, and I think he just feels like he adjusts better to that surface than, than anybody else gets down so low to the ball. And, you know, his, it, it really does the, the current grass court conditions suit him beautifully. And so I believe that, you know, the, the, the enduring success he's had on that court is going to help him this time around. Plus just what you said, he hasn't won a major since Wimbledon last year and had the heartbreak of losing to Medvedev in the U S open final one match short of the slam. And then, not able to play Australia at all and a disappointing match against Rafa in the quarters of Roland Garros. So if ever he was going to be uh, highly motivated, this is the time. Yep. I, I totally agree. And he's definitely the favorite going into Wimbledon. But um, I guess uh, before we go on to the women's, another name that I kind of had, you know, wanted to get your take on is, you know, Stefano Tsitsipas, because obviously he had, uh, you know, he was the favorite in the bottom half. And he had won Monte Carlo. He'd reached the Rome final. He had made the Madrid semis. You know, he had uh, quarters. He pushed uh, Alcaraz, lost, lost in three sets there. But I never felt like he was playing as well as he was last year. And he was kind of winning through, getting through a lot of these matches, but not really with his best stuff. Um, you know, winning more ugly against, I remember in Monte Carlo, he, he could have lost to Schwartzman, probably should have lost with that deficit yeah. that he had in the third. And then even Dimitrov had match points against him in, uh, in Rome, but didn't take them. And then, you know, here I felt like he was a bit fortunate to get out of the Musetti match, you know, used his experience and uh, played fantastically the last three sets, but Musetti really had a dip. And obviously he, then he goes long in the second round and then he had a comfortable match in the third round. But then I felt like uh, Holger Rune was really able to expose some of those weaknesses, um, you know, that we were talking about, especially in the post-AO uh, podcast. So Yeah, uh, yeah. He, did, he did expose them, I agree. Here's what I'd say. Those are very good points. He, yeah, his overall level was not as high. Was He was winning more comfortably last year. On the other hand, his clay court campaign was quite similar in terms of results. Yes. So I, and I thought he, and then when he saw the draw, I would have thought he was feeling quite good about the draw, given that Nadal and Djokovic and Alcaraz are all on the other side. He certainly didn't want to play Carlos again. So uh, I, I was puzzled. I thought you're right about Rune. On the other hand, Stefanos was coasting, not coasting, but he had the quick early break. He's 3-1 up, and suddenly his forehand and forehand approach deserted him badly. He had control of that first set. If he holds for 4-1, he's probably going to win the first set. It could have been a very different match. Yeah, And then almost came back at the end when Rune seemed to be cramping, or he certainly was feeling it mentally, very tense. And I and I but it was it was disappointing to me. I mean, at least a year ago when he didn't come through. He he beat Medvedev in the quarters. He beat Zarev in the semis, and he had no back down two sets to love. It was still a great tournament. This was not, and it's another setback for him. And I, I don't know what to expect from him at Wimbledon. You know, so far it hasn't been a pleasant experience for him there. We may not see much from him at Wimbledon. I think the key is going to be how does he perform over the summer yeah. on the hard courts, and can he get himself back in contention at the Open after the the. Uh, the, the five set loss to uh, Carlos a year ago, which was a tough defeat for him. But yeah, yeah I don't, I, at this stage, I, I think we have a, someone who's a, a little bit worried bunch, you know, he, there, he keeps talking big. He talks about getting, he was thrilled to get to number three. And then he was talking early in this year about 
he can he thinks he's going to finish the year in the top two, but I think he needs to get the focus back more on winning tournaments and winning majors. Yeah, because that hasn't been happening. We still we're still waiting at the majors, and he should win more of the regular tour events than he does. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And then I also think uh, you know what could be a positive for him is that he has more time this year on the grass, having lost early. Um, he's yeah. this week in Stuttgart, he's getting, he's played very few grass court matches. So for him, yeah. you know, it's, it, it's really, he shouldn't have very many expectations on the grass. And then it's all about what he does this summer. And if he can actually stay healthy the rest of the year, which was a bit of a problem last year as well. Yeah. But, I hope the pre- yeah. That's point. I hope the preparation does help him, but I think he's, he's a little, he's reeling a bit right now. I don't think he's a, a okay. terribly happy with the way things turned out at Roland Garros. And I think going in, he, he wanted to feel like he would be the master on his half of the draw, and then he'd only have to play Novak, Rafa, or Carlos. And he, of course, never arrived for that appointment. So yeah. I, I hope you're right. I hope the fact that he can get a lot more match play in prior to uh, going to the All England club, that that can make a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, now I guess we should we should talk about uh, Igor Sviantik because what she's doing is absolutely remarkable and, you know, the most dominant number one you would have you would have seen uh, you know in many in many years, especially since uh, you know you have to take into account that Barty retired and how quick of how uh, how quick of a transition that was really didn't even feel like a transition and that's to her credit because she's you know she's uh, so much better right now than than the rest of the field that it's uh, it, it, it's it's absolutely remarkable what she's doing um, you know thirty five matches in a row six titles in a row and you know she was pushed in the, in the third round and fourth round here and for a set by Zhang and she lost a set. And even then you still didn't, you still didn't really feel like she was going to lose. So. Oh, no, no, I never did. I never did. I'm sure you didn't either. Yeah. She's carrying herself like the dominant number one that she is. And I think it was, I think now that I think she badly wanted to get the French open back and win it for the second time. Now she's done that. And I don't feel she's going to, I don't sense there'll be quite as much pressure uh, oddly going forward because it's not as if she's going for a grand slam. So I think she can just take Wimbledon and the Open as separate units and go after them full force. And I, I, I can't imagine she's not winning at least one of the two. It wouldn't shock me if she won them both, because as you said, she really is that much better than anybody else. And I'm sorry that Barty left, mm-hmm. uh, retired, because we could have had a, a really emerging rivalry. Yeah. But the two, and we'll see where it goes. But at this stage, I, I'm I'm happy for the women that they have a bona fide number one who, who really embraces being the best and, and can run off a 35 match winning streak and, and, and keep it going. Uh, it's, it's been too long since we've had somebody like that, that welcomes relishes, relishes being at the top and believes that she belongs at the top. So I, I, I and I love her combination, by the way, I'm sure you do too. The combination of the offense and the defense, it's just irresistible. Yeah, absolutely. And her I find that her forehand is the biggest shot in the women's game right now by some uh, distance. Yeah, it is. Oh, far and away. Far and away. And the backhand is, is rock solid and she moves it around well and very accurate. But yes, the forehand, she can do almost anything she wants. And then she comes off of defense onto offense in in a in the blink of an eye. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just impressed by her resilience and her mental strength as well, because uh, yeah. then to come through this tournament like she did on skis. Okay. It's one thing to win it in 2020 and lose just 28 games. And, you know, and I, I guess, you know, last year, you know, she didn't quite follow up with a great year. 
like like you know some had hoped but then the way she is the the way she played with that weight of expectations on her shoulder and um and, and with so much pressure because basically anyone basically anything other than a loss would have been disappointing so listen it's been a long time coming for the women's game ash barty was a was a, was a really elegant you know uh commendable champion and it was nice to see her get Wimbledon last year and add that to the French that she'd previously won and then and then top it off with the Australian this year but she didn't by all accounts she didn't enjoy the traveling she didn't like the life that much I think does I think she really she's I think she's very comfortable in that leading that life and chasing those dreams and and definitely comfortable with being at the top so uh I I, I've, I've wanted this for women's tennis for a long time to have someone step up like that and say, okay, I'm the best and I'm going to keep proving it week after week, surface after surface. Mm-hmm. And, and just looking ahead to Wimbledon, obviously she's only played 12, she's only played 12 matches on grass and she's won seven and lost five. And, you know, she's a junior Wimbledon champion last year. It took a great performance from Ons Jabor to beat her in the fourth round. Uh, but just going into that and, you, you know, just knowing that, you know, it's a surface she's less comfortable on and, the kick serve won't work as effectively. Um, you know, there may be other opponents who serve extremely well in the day and take her out. Maybe a, a Yelena Ostapenko type who just takes the ball really early or, or Danielle Collins, the two players that she's, she last lost to in the streak. Uh, but is there any, or maybe someone comes along with variety and, you know, maybe maybe makes things a little bit more challenging for her. Someone like a Karolina Mukova, I'm thinking, well, with her slice backhand and if she can stay healthy and, but it's just, it's so hard to, to envision someone beating her right now. Like she's just leaps and bounds ahead. Yeah, I don't, I don't put too much stock on the seven and five grass court, right? You know, the, the stats from the past don't mean much right now because she's lifted her entirely new level. You're right about the kick serve and you're right about the types of players that could catch her on any given day and hit her off the court, but it's still going to be very difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh and the, these grass courts are not playing like Wimbledon did, you know, 20 years ago. Yep. So they're to her liking now. And I think she'll, she'll adapt very well, by the way. And I suspect if she can string together three good matches, you know, over the course of that first week, get herself into the round of 16. At that point, she may, she may well be unstoppable. Yep. I, I totally agree. And adaptability is one of her, her, her main strengths. Uh, but but also looking at the finalists, um, Coco Goff, you know, she's also come come a long way. Nothing nothing crazy the last three years, but very steady kind of incremental uh, incremental progress from her. And to get to the final here, I think was a was a was a great result. And in some ways, it's I think it's good for her that she got demolished in the final because I think she learned a lot from it. And you know, definitely her forehand, which is her biggest weakness, was majorly exposed again. And I think that and I mean that in a I mean that in a great way because I think. Uh, the rest of her game is spectacular. I really, I really have a lot of admiration for Coco, and she's. I've been following her very closely the last three years. But uh, do you have a feeling that you know in the next couple of years, especially two or three years, she'll be right in the mix and she'll be winning these things? Well, I totally, I concur with you a hundred percent on that, and I and I also do agree for the same reasons that this was. I mean, there's no sense her losing four and five to Iga because Iga doesn't. Iga's tight and not playing particularly well. It was better for her to play a top of the line uh, world number one and, and learn. And she will uh-huh. learn. I think she's Coco's worked hard on her forehand. It, it was still exposed, no doubt about it, but I think yeah. she's been steadily trying to improve it and eventually will. And same for the second serve. I think, you know, these, these are areas that she'll continue to zone in on, but 
I was glad for her to take advantage of a really favorable draw, get to that final, and and now she can build from there. I still think it was very up, uplifting for her to find herself around there for the, the the final Saturday and out there playing for the title. And even if it didn't go as well as she wanted and she didn't get a set or come close to it, she uh, she comes away from Roland Garros, you know, a, a, as a, a better competitor and looking forward to the whole summer. She'll she'll do well at Wimbledon, by the way. We know what she can do on grass. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And she's, in, uh, you know, so we have we have a lot of great storylines, you know, heading into Wimbledon. And, you know, I look forward to speaking to you again, hopefully, you know, after the tournament or sometime before if we get a chance. But it's been a pleasure, Steve. And it was great having you again and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Same here, Vanch. Uh, I enjoyed it. And, and I do look forward to the post-Wimbledon talk. And and uh, it, it'll be interesting to see because when it comes to the men, you know, it certainly looks after what, the operation that Sasha Zara just had. It's hard to imagine he can possibly play the tournament. We uh-huh. won't have, we know we have no Medvedev there. Yeah. So the cast, you know, the, and, and each, both Zarev and Medvedev would have been strong contenders. So we, we're going to have fewer this year. Herkosh, I think, will be dangerous again, by the way. People should not overlook Herkosh on the, on the grass. But uh, I do think you, when you take Medvedev and Zarev out of the equation, it makes Novak an even larger favor. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and of course, you know, with the whole, uh, with the whole no points thing at Wimbledon, um, that's going to also affect the way some players go into these matches. And um, it's, it's going to have a different sort of feel to grasp than what we're used to. Well, I just hope, Vance, that you brought up an important point. I just hope, I mean, we heard Osaka make some comments shortly after that. The points situation was announced by both tours. Uh-huh. And he almost seemed to be using it as an excuse to not go at that point, saying, you know, well, there's no points. Yeah. I, I hope no, I don't think any of the other leading players are going to think about that at all. I think they're disappointed probably because they believe it's an injustice. But I don't think anybody's going to think it anything different about Wimbledon this year than they have in any other year in the sense they know it's the preeminent showcase event of the sport. And I think all the leading players will treat it as seriously as they always have. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Um, it's, it's, it's always been the, the tournament, the, uh, the venue that you associate with tennis for, for ages. So it's, uh, it'll be, it'll be spectacular seeing it again. And yeah, looking forward to it and looking forward to our post grand slam post-major chat at Wimbledon. Oh, all right, Vanj. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Yep. Enjoyed it thoroughly. Um, and take care, Steve. You too. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>